Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, history friends. Welcome to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Did you think that we were finished? Did you really think it would be that easy that we just finish the signing? We look at the 28th of June 1919 and that's it. It's all finished. Does anybody know me? As Chandler would say. As Chandler would not say though, I hope you enjoy this latest episode of this project. Wow, that was a smooth segue. See, I'm getting better and better at this, guys, as we go along. You've been listening to this project by now for many, many hours. And I hope that if you have been enjoying it, you've been telling people about it too. Because even though we're winding down, this guy will be in the airwaves for many years to come. Just like it was the case with the July Crisis Project, I think people were scared away when it was happening, but once it was over, they all joined in. And a great way for you to spread the word is by simply sharing any information that you can about this podcast online, on Facebook, in the Facebook group, Facebook page, or at WDF Podcast by following us on Twitter. We're not on Instagram because I don't hate you that much, but we are on Flick, an app which you can download from either of the app stores and bypass all of that social media nonsense and just access the history. If you'd like to access our Flick group, simply download the app or click on the link in the description below. If you've no interest in being sociable at all and you're listening to this right now thinking, well, why would I bother socializing with people when the whole point of a podcast is to listen to it by myself? Well, I think you've got the right idea there, history friend. So why not go and access more of this stuff by going to the Patreon page for this podcast and supporting us for as little as $1 a month. If you give us $1 a month, you'll get... Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, a 10-part series looking at warfare in the 17th century. What more could you want? Well, how about a 12-part series looking at a biography of Jan Sobieski, Poland's last really good king? That is available if you pledge $5 a month. And for pledging $5 a month, you'll also get access to 1956, among other things, of course, but 1956 is our biggest, largest extra series to date. We look at that year, 1956, as the name implies, And we look at the post-Stalin era, when Stalin had died in 53, and the Soviet Union kind of buckled under the pressure of trying to be a bit more liberal, but still not letting people live their lives the way they wanted. Alternatively, in the second part of that, we're currently looking at the Suez Crisis, although we've taken a tinsy tiny break from that, just as we finish up here with Versailles. There's still so much content still to come, and there is so much content in the back catalogue as well, guys. So if you're in a situation where you're somehow thirsty for more of my voice, then check out our Patreon page. Several people have been signing up recently at the $2 level, which gets you all these episodes without ads and with the scripts attached. So if in some future alternative scenario where I decide to upload 
the entire script collection of this series, then check that out. But if you like to just read them as they come out, then the $2 level is for you. Patreon.com, of course, is where to go for that. Or click on the link in the description below. It's almost like I've said all this 83 times. But I don't want you to think that I take you for granted. So without any further ado, let's get into this episode. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 83. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 83 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time, we of course examined that infamous day in the 20th century, where the Treaty of Versailles was officially signed. The German treaty was finished, so it seemed, and while the treaty would still need to be ratified in the various parliaments, and while Congress would come up short in this quest, there was no denying that the main mission of the peace conference was met. With this, one could be forgiven for thinking that the task of the peacemakers, and indeed our task as the Versailles Anniversary Project, was over with the signing of that treaty. However, while we will not be dwelling on the fate of all the actors, I felt it would be wrong not to provide some sort of epilogue for a few of them. The peacemakers had been able to write their names at the end of the Treaty of Versailles, but it remained for other peacemakers, mostly forgotten in history, to write, yours sincerely, everyone else at the end of their peace treaties. So in this episode, we'll give as much of a farewell to those peacemakers and the fruits of their efforts as we can. It will be an episode of many flavours and tones because of this, but to add additional colour to our narrative, I believe it will be worth it. We have a lot to get through today, so without any further ado, I'll now take you to just one such tale that normally escapes the mainstream German story with an encounter between Edward House and the Foreign Minister of Japan. My most important caller this morning, wrote Edward House on the morning of the 29th of June, was Japanese Foreign Minister Baron Makino Nabuaki. He brought his photograph, upon which he had expressed his gratitude and called me his friend. I asked him about the international rumour that Germany in the autumn of 1918 had made a treaty with Japan. Makino said it was too absurd to deny. I urged him to do so and he indicated that he would. We discussed the general world situation and the difficulties which faced us all. He spoke of Japan's problem as to food and raw materials, and predicted that there would be trouble ahead if they were not given some relief through Siberia and China. He deprecated the attitude of the Japanese press, and said it was entirely uncontrollable. By now, of course, it would have been virtually pointless to petition House for any purpose, as he was en route to leaving the conference at long last. I'm leaving this afternoon at three o'clock by motor for Bologna and England, and I shall not renew this diary for many days, House wrote in the beginning of his final diary on the 29th of June, adding with some palpable poignancy, I may, in the quiet of the country, tell something of my general impression of the conference and the treaty. Of course, while he was making himself sound restrained here, 
House was fundamentally incapable of remaining quiet. To put it in perspective, the treaty which we have been mostly drawing on for the period of January to June 1919 was only Volume 7 of a series which House had been dictating to his secretary since 1912, and which he would continue working on into the 1920s. These diaries all remain freely available online, as I have said, thanks to the preservation efforts of Yale, but there is no doubt, having read these entries, that House fully intended them to see the light of day, perhaps especially once it became apparent that matters were not proceeding as planned, and that he may be required to defend his record. Certainly the seventh volume of his diary is a great tool for tracing the President's falling out with his old bestie, as House was gradually marginalised to the corners of the American delegation, and Wilson saw eye to eye with the old Texan less and less. The difference in view had been exacerbated by the genuine disagreements which many on the US delegation had had with their President over the Japanese possession of Shantung, and Tasker Howard Bliss, as we have seen, was more than willing to express his own serious reservations about it. In Wilson's mind, any shortcomings in the agreements which were made could be made good by the erection of the League of Nations into the centre of any resulting crises which might emerge, notwithstanding how unable the President had been to explain how this might actually work. But in addition, this distancing between the two old friends is reflected in House's last recorded conversation with the President on the 28th of June, that day of days. Foremost in the President's mind was that quest which now awaited him, of course, and which would defeat him, that of getting the treaty and thus the League of Nations ratified by Congress. House was eager to offer his advice in this quest. Of course he was, but it was apparent that the President was reluctant to listen. My last conversation with the President, House said, was not reassuring. Continuing, I urged him to meet the Senate in a conciliatory spirit. I was certain if he treated them with the same consideration he had used with his foreign colleagues here, all would be well. In reply, he said, House, I have found one can never get anything in this life that is worthwhile without fighting for it. I combated this and reminded him that Anglo-Saxon civilization was built upon compromise. I said that a fight was the last thing to be brought about, and then only when it could not be avoided. My own plan in negotiations had been to get all I could by friendly methods, but if driven to fight, then it was to do it so effectively that no one would wish to drive me to it again. It was fair enough by this point to say that a power whom House had failed to sufficiently fight for, really, at all, was the Chinese. The German colony in China had been based on the Shantung Peninsula, and with the defeat of these colonial German forces in November 1914, Japan's war in Asia had effectively come to an end. From then, Japan set to work establishing its own regime in the Shantung area, a region consisting of 30 million Chinese, with lucrative coal deposits and cheap labour on offer. The jewel in the Shantung crown was unquestionably the port of Tsingtao, formerly Qiaqiao. When the Germans had arrived in the 1890s, Tsingtao was merely a fishing village with a few upsides, but after two decades of lavishing money upon it, Tsingtao had become an invaluable port by 1919. Understandably, the Chinese had expected that with the defeat of the old German colonial occupation regime by its technical ally in Japan, Shantung would be returned to her. As the peace conference progressed, though, it became increasingly apparent that Japan would demand the region and would justify its possession based on agreements made in one-sided treaties with the crumbling Chinese government. 
Wilson's inability to stand up to the Japanese and his belief that to return Shantung to China would mean the collapse of the conference only served to create additional problems. As we've seen, there was no question over whether Shantung actually belonged to China, but capitalising upon the exit of the Italians, the Japanese delegates smelled blood in the water and they pushed for their concessions relentlessly. The difficulties ruptured the unity of the five-man American delegation, which wasn't particularly strong to begin with. But news of what was coming down the pipeline was public by early May, before these conditions were enshrined within the draft treaty. One student, gathering among thousands of others at Peking University, later recalled the scene. When news of the peace conference finally reached us, we were greatly shocked. We at once woke to the fact that foreign nations were still selfish and militaristic, and that they were all great liars. I remember the night of the 2nd of May, and very few of us slept. A group of my friends and I talked almost the whole night. We came to the conclusion that a greater world war would be coming sooner or later, and that this great war would be fought in the East. We had nothing to do with our government, that we knew very well, and at the same time we could no longer depend upon the principles of any so-called great leader like Woodrow Wilson, for example. Looking at our people and at the pitiful, ignorant masses, we couldn't help but feel that we must struggle. Indeed, the struggle for China was only really beginning, as the country was torn between warlords, pro-Japanese factions, nationalists, communists and others, and the Japanese had already entered down the path, which would ignite the de facto war between the two countries from the late 1920s. There remained in the meantime a sense in American public opinion that Shantung should be returned to the Chinese and that it should not have been taken from the Chinese to begin with. Ideas of China remained popular in American media and society, a trend which continued until the end of the Chinese Civil War when Chiang Kai-shek's faction was defeated and Truman supposedly lost China. From 1919 to 1949, in other words, China was rarely completely absent from the discourse of American foreign policy. It would be fair to say that Shantung provided some power to this discourse from 1919, partially because, of course, there was a sense of guilt among the American delegates as to what had been done at the peace conference. In a 1921 conversation with the Japanese ambassador, for example, Elihu Root insisted that the American public wished to see Shantung return to the Chinese people in its entirety. But that was far from all. Figures like Secretary of State Robert Lansing was seen publicly to decry the transfer of Shantung from Germany to Japan, and from 1921, he was actually hired by the Chinese government to represent the Chinese case for Shantung, in his capacity as an international lawyer of some repute. As the years progressed and the Chinese grew more enraged and apoplectic at the Japanese intransigence, Shantung came to serve as just one among many insults in the Sino-Japanese relationship. The Japanese also made use of the League to mask the extent of their crime, and they continued to bolster their regime in Manchuria, and it was plain that the two powers were destined to head on a collision course which neither the West nor the League nor anyone else, it seemed, could really avert. Shantung ensured that the antagonism between the two parties would not die down, and it virtually guaranteed that conflict would ensue in Asia, as that student predicted earlier on. Considering the fate of China and the critical failure of the Allies in protecting her from the predators who had lurked for decades in the background, it's hardly surprising that House and his peers on the American delegation were not fully satisfied. House noted later in his entry of the 29th of June that 
I am leaving Paris after eight fateful months with conflicting emotions. Looking at the conference in retrospect, there is much to approve and much to regret. It is easy to say what should have been done, but more difficult to have found a way for doing it. The bitterness engendered by the war, the hopes raised high in many quarters because of victory, the character of the men having the dominant voices in making the treaty, all had their influence for good or for evil, and were to be reckoned with. There seemed to be no full realisation of the conditions which were to be met. An effort was made to enact a peace upon the usual lines. This should never have been attempted. The greater part of civilization had been shattered, and history could guide us but little in the making of this peace. How splendid it would have been had we blazed a new and better trail. However, it is to be doubted whether this could have been done, even if those in authority had so decreed, for the peoples back of them had to be reckoned with. One figure who was not so fortunate to escape from Paris, after the Treaty of Versailles was signed at least, was Tasker Howard Bliss, who would remain in Paris for the next six months as the treaties with Austria and Bulgaria were hammered out. As the Big Three departed the scene though, it became immediately apparent that much of the force had been taken out of the peace conference. What remained of the peace conference consisted of foreign ministers and senior diplomats mostly from July 1919, but their executive power to make legal decisions was removed and it was passed back to the home governments, which helps to explain why Hungary's final treaty, for instance, was not finalised until the following July with the Treaty of Trianon in 1920. Bliss found these delays and shortcomings impossible to bear. Indeed, he felt as though he was wasting his time, and he wrote to his wife on the 17th of July, 1919, to the effect that, But, although I am busy, I don't see that I am accomplishing anything. Day after day I go to the Quai d'Orsay and hear discussed the same questions that have been discussed time and again. On some questions their minds seem to be utterly befogged. On others their minds have been long made up, some for and some against, but they seem to have a strange reluctance to have a showdown. The most exasperating thing to me is the time that is wasted on subjects that don't in the least concern us. We are here as peace delegates to make peace treaties with the enemy powers, but for one hour that is passed in discussing a clause in the treaty, whole days are passed in discussing Bolshevism, how support can be given to the anti-Bolshevik Kolchak government in Omsk, how Bela Kuhn's government in Hungary can be overthrown, and so on, until everyone is in a perfect muddle. And after all that, they get nowhere. Those that have played the delegation game may even recognise some of the inherent problems in this structure, but Bliss was not the only figure in the stripped-back American delegation to feel the strain after House and Wilson had gone. Henry White, the other largely forgotten delegate on the five-man American group, shared his colleagues' frustrations, as Bliss himself recorded. I told Mr. White this morning that if we could not bring things to a head in another month, I was thinking of asking to be relieved. Mr. White said that if I do so, he would also. Whether it was loyalty, stubbornness, ideology, or a mixture of all three, Bliss would stay in place for the remainder of the year, even though it evidently wore him down. By October, he was writing to Secretary of State Lansing to the effect that If we are to remain here until such questions as that of the Adriatic, of Romania, and of various other questions that are harassing Europe are settled, I do not know when we will get home. I cannot believe that the United States will continue indefinitely to participate in the apparently futile efforts to settle these questions. I think that the best way in which the United States can now exercise a pacifying and stabilizing effect on European affairs would be to withdraw on its own borders 
and say to Europe that the latter can count upon our assistance only in case of immediate and reasonable demobilisation as a first step towards the creation of the League of Nations. But I shall not worry you with my views on this subject. I wrote them to you a year ago, and I have not changed my opinion one iota. A league, the members of which are armed for international war, will prove a ghastly failure. Of course, the league itself was to fail as well in the months that followed, a bitter fate which could hardly have been expected amidst the jubilant scenes on the 28th of June. Wilson's insistence on returning to America as soon as the peace was signed was telling, of course, since it demonstrated how quickly his priorities had switched once the work in Europe was done. There was no sense in waiting or revelling in what had been achieved, because in the President's view nothing mattered so long as the Treaty and the League had not been ratified by Congress. Wilson's year-long campaign to win that ratification battle effectively ended in spring 1920, but even within a few months, the President would be taken out of action with a debilitating stroke in October 1919. The combined toll of getting the Treaty of Versailles and making a Republican Congress say yes to it proved too much for him. So too did the original plan of the three allies and the dream of Clemenceau to bind American defence measures to the continent with a three-way guarantee between Britain, America and France in the event that Germany attacked. This request proved a step too far for the increasingly isolationist Congress and as a result, Clemenceau lost perhaps his most valued concession. He may have felt vindicated then in having claimed the Rhineland occupation since the British Prime Minister had insisted loudly that only the occupation or the guarantee, and not both, were truly necessary. The devastating verdict of Congress, however, had shown that the chasm between agreement and ratification was wide indeed. In the end, certainly, Clemenceau would have preferred a solid guarantee of the wartime alliance and a commitment by the Allies not to abandon France to face Germany alone, as she almost had done in August 1914. To prevent the next war from erupting, Clemenceau believed, one must prepare for it, so that there could be no doubt in German minds that the Allies would jointly contest any German violation of the peace terms. There was also a difference in perspective which the minutes of the Council of Four had revealed to us. Lloyd George and Wilson had insisted that acquiring the treaty with Germany would be enough. Clemenceau insisted that getting the treaty was only half the battle, and holding the Germans to their side of the bargain was the other half. This half, Clemenceau said, this latter half, could only be guaranteed with sufficient force, but there was no appetite for that policy among the Anglo-Americans, who only very reluctantly agreed to stay in the Rhineland in the first place. Lloyd George requested minimal British military commitments, and Wilson insisted that the League could iron out the problems between the Franco-Germans in the meantime, thereby avoiding war by diplomacy. In the final analysis of this debate over guarantees, we must confess that Clemenceau was far more in tune to the situation than his peers, and that he understood the German character far better. Rightly so, Clemenceau would have said in response, for he had been fighting them tooth and nail most of his life. Interestingly, it was the Czech foreign minister, Edward Benesch, who provided an examination of the protracted negotiations between the British and French from 1920. As the two parties worked to create some kind of treaty between themselves following the withdrawal of the United States from the earlier tripartite agreement, the result was actually... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Actually, to increase the tensions and misunderstandings between Britain and France up to 1924. In 1923, when French forces cooperated with the Belgians to occupy the Ruhr, the act was looked upon in Britain as a flagrant crime, rather than what the then French Premier Raymond Poincaré viewed it as the last desperate gasp of a French administration to hold the Germans to their reparations, repayments. Parallel to these bilateral negotiations, the League of Nations, shorn of its Wilsonian guide, attempted, nonetheless, to realise its potential. Discussions over disarmament and of hammering out the terms of the actual assistance elements of the League were hosted in Geneva, with representatives from most states also debating in the League's assembly. As Benesch recalled at the time, he was writing this article in 1926, I defended this project as an endeavour to solve the question of security, for it gave full recognition and acceptance to the principles adopted by us in our foreign policy. In the name of the Czechoslovak government, I also sent the League of Nations in August 1924 a note in which I laid down the standpoint of our government in still more detail. I supported the principle of regional treaties and the necessity of arbitration, but at the same time I also emphasised the duty of every state to contribute, by all means in its power and within the framework of the League of Nations, to the general security. Discussions over the idea of mutual assistance in the event that one of the League states was attacked led to the creation of the Geneva Protocol in September 1924, which attempted to kind of hammer out these circumstances in a bit more detail and with a bit more clarity. But as Benesch recorded, the new Labour government in Britain under Ramsay MacDonald felt compelled to declare itself against the Geneva Protocol shortly afterwards, on the basis that the demands placed upon the bloated British Empire would have been too great. Of particular concern to the British at the time was the responsibilities it would have placed upon the British Empire to defend states in Eastern Europe. This at a time when the British flag fluttered over portions of the Middle East, Asia, Africa, North America, the Mediterranean, and essentially any region one could think of. And this demonstrated that London's priorities in the post-war world would centre not on the principle of collective security, as espoused originally by the American president in Articles 10 and 11 of the League, but instead on the preservation of its empire. 
This did not detain Benesch, who noted on the French effort to essentially pull much of the continent together under a French defensive system instead. The British might restrict themselves to guaranteeing purely the Rhine and the Belgian frontier against the Germans, but French diplomacy was necessarily more imaginative. Benesch, writing in 1926, was determined to play an active role in this system, and he noted that In the present negotiations, we maintain reserve and remain circumspect, and do not wish in advance to draw attention to what may or may not happen if the Pact of Geneva is or is not realised. We are prepared for both eventualities. In two matters, however, we emphasise again our determination and intentions. We shall not surrender any of our rights, nor any of the guarantees that we have obtained, and we shall never cease to work, as heretofore, for the consolidation and stabilisation of universal peace. And it was in Benesch's interest to work for this peace. The tone of this 1926 article is upbeat and ambitious, envisioning a period of peaceful relations between the Czech government and its East European neighbours. In the future, Benesch hoped to reach out to Russia and to potentially bring Germany and Austria into the League. That latter move, Benesch believed, would help reduce French apprehension over its security, but it might also make Paris less amenable to make alliance pacts with virtually all of Europe. Benesch takes the time to single out Poland in his consideration of diplomacy up to that point, writing... We desire always to live in agreement and a neighbourly friendship with Poland. For our own existence, we need that of Poland, just as Poland needs our existence. The benefit to both nations will here be equal. We do not interfere in Polish affairs because we truly desire for the Polish nation a happy and peaceful future, real peace and economic and cultural prosperity, and we wish to live in true and sincere cooperation with Poland in the future in all these fields. By this point, the democratic government in Poland had nearly completely broken down. The confusing developments which had propelled General Joseph Pilsudski to the forefront of Poland meant that that country was a de facto dictatorship under his rule from 1926, though officially Pilsudski was merely the premier. Famed for his wartime exploits and credited with saving the country in the August 1920 Battle of Warsaw, where the Soviet Red Army was repelled in the Polish-Soviet War, Pilsudski was like a relic of Poland's past. He claimed Polish-Lithuanian citizenship, cemented an alliance with Ukraine, and worked to re-establish Poland in a position akin to its 16th century dominance in Eastern Europe, with the retreat of Soviet Russia apparently permanent. Of course, the defeat of the Soviets and jubilation among Poles was to prove incredibly bittersweet, as Soviet Russians, and eventually Stalin, would make great use of that humiliation to return with a terrible vengeance in 1939, partitioning Poland once more. Apocalyptically tragic scenes were to visit Poland within a generation, but by the mid-1920s, the country had apparently stabilised and normalised relations with its neighbours, including the Czechs, as Benesz noted. Paderewski, that famed pianist who had represented Poland's interests to enthusiastic American audiences, did not stay on long as premier. From 1920, the country was ruled interchangeably by those sympathetic to Roman Domowski's vision of a dominant nationalist Poland, or Pilsudski's vision of a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth version 2.0, with Lithuania, Ukraine, Galicia and other regions coming under her control, or at least influence. Going hand-in-hand with these visions were the right-wing, frequently 
anti-Semitic utterances of Domovsky's followers and the left-wing expansionist vision of Pilsudski's. Pilsudski sought to empower the army, reduce the powers of Poland's parliament, and hamper the activities of the political parties, whom Pilsudski blamed for dividing Poland into competing factions. Anxiously mindful of the necessity in keeping Poland's factions together, a period of so-called sanation followed, where Pilsudski worked to restore public life to moral health. From 1926 until his death in 1935, Poland marched to the tune of this idea. This included a plan to assimilate non-Poles, rather than remove them from the country as Domowski intended. To Pilsudski, it mattered less what your ethnicity was, and more how loyal you were to the Polish national ideal. Included in this group were a large minority of Polish Jews, who would later come to view the period 1926 to 1935 as the better time, though considering what came after, very few alternative times could be considered worse. Undoubtedly, Pilsudski's death in 1935 meant the end of an era for the country as well as for its Jews. Before long, the Polish far-right nationalist government began to implement anti-Semitic policies which were eerily similar in many respects to its more infamously anti-Semitic Nazi neighbour. Poland's relationship with Jews in the interwar and wartime era remains contentious in Poland today, as an examination of the government's current attitude towards the Holocaust will clearly demonstrate. Benesch mostly avoided the Baltic situation in his comments, probably because he did not understand it very well. Even by 1926, the Baltic states presented at best an uncertain picture of nation-states, caught between Polish, German and Soviet greater powers, and enjoying tenuous support in the West. The events of late 1918, and much of 1919, had transformed the Baltic region into a thoroughly complicated morass of conflicting ideologies, loyalties and nationalisms. Baltic Germans, Red Army soldiers and their white Russian rivals, ethnic Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanians, Poles, expatriate Finns, Danes or Swedes, and of course the Fry Corps were all thrown into the mix. The British mostly stayed in the Baltic Sea, just off land, rotating their staffs to prevent their sailors from mutinying out of boredom, but it was anything but boring for those on the ground. The region had been held by the Germans until the armistice in November 1918, evacuated and left to the nation-states in the Baltic, then overrun by the Red Army in February 1919. Then it was retaken by the nation-states and German Freikorps in the spring, stabilised through the early summer, and compromised by white Russian infighting, ethnic conflict, and even a bit of Polish interference. Back in Paris, visions of what the region should look like, in the mind of Woodrow Wilson at least, flew in the face of the nationalistic Estonian, Latvian or Lithuanian peoples, whom Wilson seemed to believe would be better suited to being ruled from Moscow, Warsaw or even Berlin. George Clemenceau and Lloyd George were similarly unenthused, and a Royal Navy presence mostly remained in the sea nearby to keep a handle on what was going on, or at least provide some up-to-date information. By the mid-1920s, the three Baltic states were under military dictatorships, led by those three generals who had commanded their victorious side, during the terrible wars. These wars had had great and historically underrated impacts upon the people that were involved. They served as the baptism by fire for many future Nazis who fought there against communism and the nationalistic Baltic peoples alike as Freikorps soldiers. The Baltic would be subsumed in autumn 1939 as Hitler carved up Poland and the Red Army marched west. 
Another interesting omission from Benesh's aforementioned examination of his country's policy was the troublesome Hungary. Belakun's Soviet-Hungarian regime lasted only from March to August 1919, but existing in the backdrop of fears of Bolshevism and panic amidst Kuhn's initially successful military ventures, the regime was to have profound consequences for Hungarian history and its neighbours. Having hosted a Soviet regime which only a small portion of the population supported, Hungary swung determinedly to the right in the 1920s, under the rule of another military dictator, this one, Admiral Miklos Horthy. Curiously, Hungary was still classified as a kingdom in spite of its banned Habsburg monarch, who actually tried to return to the country on two occasions. Thus, Horthy was appointed the regent of this kingdom, but the term regent quickly lost all meaning, as Horthy banned opposition parties and swung further to the right as he did so. This governmental structure played naturally into the policies of Nazi Germany, but Horthy proved insufficiently enthusiastic for the Nazi cause, refusing to deport its 800,000 Jews, and working on secret deals with the Allies in 1944 to remove Hungary from the war. When these were discovered, Miklos Horthy was arrested and taken to Bavaria by the Nazis, and a new government under the so-called Arrow Cross was established for the final few months of the war in Hungary, in which time tens of thousands of Hungarians were killed, and the country braced itself for a further apocalypse with the approaching Red Army. Uniquely among its collaborationist peers, Horthy went into exile in Portugal after the Second World War, and he published his memoirs a few years before his death in 1957. Horthy's career, spanning 22 years as the head of the Hungarian state, revolved around the aim of reversing the punitive measures inherent in the Treaty of Trianon, which punished Hungary not just for its membership in the Central Powers camp during the First World War, but also for Bailakun's ill-advised efforts to seize neighbouring lands in the summer of 1919, including Transylvania and Slovakia. Harold Temperley, the British historian best known for his work compiling Britain's primary sources together for that multi-volume series, British Documents on the Origins of the War, took some time out of his busy schedule as a Cambridge scholar and author to pen an article for Foreign Affairs in 1928, wherein Temperley claimed that, in fact, no event affected the frontiers of Hungary more decisively than the Socialist Revolution which broke out at Budapest in April 1919 and enthroned as dictator. And Temperley added, Bailakun finally sent forces to attack both Czechoslovakia and Romania, and it was this action that forced the Big Four to come to a decision regarding Hungary's new frontiers and to order Bailakun to retire behind them. This was the true and final decision, and the Fini Hungary, the end of the old heterogeneous Hungarian kingdom, was decreed on the 13th of June 1919, while the Big Four were still at Paris. These latter acts of Hungary apparently spreading its wings under a Soviet dictatorship and invading all of its neighbours terrified the likes of Benesh, but they were impossible to maintain as Hungary was surrounded on all sides, and by the first week of August 1919, it was Romanian soldiers that were in the ascendant as they marched through the streets of Budapest in the ultimate humiliation. Bailakun, for his part, escaped to Russia, where he was killed under Stalin's orders in the frenzy of purges in the late 1930s. The country which Kuhn left behind was equally unfortunate, as Ioan Bratianu, the Romanian premier, 
gained far more than he had ever bargained for. In mid-June, with the demand of the Allies for Kuhn's forces to retreat back to their old borders, this demand also included Hungary's neighbours. This was impossible for Bratianu to fulfil, though, and he looked for an alternative, which was soon found. In spite of Allied demands, there was plainly not enough men to spare from Paris for an expedition to enforce the terms of a peace treaty upon Hungary. And until this peace was made, the region would continue to be volatile. Yet the regime of Béla Kuhn, while it tottered on the edge of collapse, did not actually collapse. It held on over the summer and presented a unique challenge to the Allies instead. Over June and July, notes were passed between Paris and Budapest to the effect that the Allies demanded Hungarian compliance with their peace terms. Getting wind of these notes, Bratianu indicated to his government in Bucharest on the 7th of July that it was up to Romania to march into Budapest and exterminate Bolshevism from Hungary. Then and only then could the peace treaty properly be enforced in that country. Bratianu thus took matters into his own hands, making use of the Romanian troops then positioned along the Tisa River, pushing back Kuhn's depleted forces in the last two weeks of July, until by the 4th of August, as we said, Romanian soldiers entered Budapest and Kuhn fled for Russian pastures greener. As the historian Sherman David Spector saw it, It was clear that the Allies had failed to exert their authority in East-Central Europe. The Council had done more to encourage Romania's advance than it had done to prevent it. While the Allies continued to show irresolution, Bratianu took the bit between his teeth and evicted the Bolsheviks from Hungary. Romania's attitude was only natural, although some of her methods, prior to and after Kuhn's attack, carried the policy of reprisals too far. Had Romania been defeated by Kuhn, it is doubtful if any assistance would have been forthcoming from the Allies, since they had shown themselves utterly powerless to deal with Bela Kuhn. From August until the adjournment of the peace conference on the 21st of January 1920, the Allies would have to coerce Romania, a recalcitrant ally, rather than Hungary, an enemy state, into respecting the impaired authority of the peace conference. Interestingly, reflecting the interconnected nature of warfare in Eastern Europe at the time, Bratianu was only able to march into Hungary because he had been informed of Polish moves against the Red Army, which kept the Soviets busy and meant that Romania would not be invaded from the rear. On the 8th of August, capping off a successful advance, Polish forces captured Minsk in Belarus. The Polish-Soviet war was about to enter its most intense phase, as Bratianu entered into a period of sustained political popularity. None of Bratianu's critics at home in Romania could lambast his policy without simultaneously arguing for a return to the status quo, which had been immensely unpopular. Now Romania was in a position to make incredible gains. The Allies had demonstrated their complete lack of influence in the region, and in a polar opposite situation to 18 months before, where a surrounded Romania collapsed before the German invasion, now was the Romanians doing the invading. Bratianu spent the next year campaigning for the retention of these gains, and he was eventually successful, playing upon Allied divisions and inaction to oversee the most incredible expansion of any European state in the post-war era. As Sherman continued, Romania emerged from World War I with few, if any, disappointments. A greater Romanian state coming into existence as a geographical entity represented the fulfilment of an idea that only five years earlier had been no more than a dream. From a pre-war area of 53,661 square miles 
and a population of 7.5 million, Romania grew to 113,941 square miles, an area almost equal to the combined territories of the states of Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Delaware and Maryland, and a population of about 16 million. Reflecting on the troubled years between the signing of the alliance and the ingathering of the new provinces, most Romanians had good cause for satisfaction. Basic national aspirations had become a reality, and the obstacles to a greater Romania had been overcome. This was quite a turnaround for a statesman like Bratianu, who had found it difficult indeed to locate friends among the delegates at the peace conference. Romania, following this incredible showing in the peace settlement, followed a surprising trajectory thereafter. Bratianu and his king both died in 1927, and a shaky regency was replaced by the somewhat unstable King Carol II, who returned in 1930 and set about establishing one of the few absolutist monarchies in Europe. By 1938, Romania was little better than the personal fief of King Carol II, and Romania awkwardly entered the Second World War on the same side as Hungary with Nazi Germany, a problematic fact as the Hungarian leader, Miklos Horty, had hoped to gain Transylvania in return for his support of the Nazis. Hitler's little dictators continued to squabble amongst themselves, providing a mostly uninspired level of support to the war effort before both were overrun by the avenging Red Army in late 1944. Just as incredible as the story of what Romania gained is that of what Hungary lost. The Treaty of Trianon, signed on the 4th of June 1920 at the Grand Trianon Palace at Versailles, reduced the size and population of Hungary by about two-thirds, divesting it of virtually all areas that were not purely Magyar. Romania got Transylvania, part of the adjoining plain and part of the Banat, including Timisoara, a long-contested region among Hungarian and Romanian statesmen. Yugoslavia obtained Croatia, Slavonia and the western section of the Banat. Czechoslovakia was confirmed in possession of Slovakia and Ruthenia. Hungary was deprived of access to the sea and some of its most valuable natural resources. The military establishment of the country was reduced to an army of 35,000. The Hungarian delegation signed the treaty under protest, but there was very little they could do. Hungarian agitation for revision began immediately and was supported by the majority of the more than 3 million Magyars transferred to Romania, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. Trianon created a sickness of revenge within Hungary, far more justifiable than that which soon seeped into German politics. Having been reduced to 28% of her pre-war territory, one could argue that, with the exception of Turkey, who didn't receive a final peace treaty for some time, Hungary received the most punitive terms from the Allied negotiators. The shattering experience played into the hands of revanchist Hungarian statesmen and later Nazi Germany, since it meant that Eastern Europe contained states which a wronged Germany could identify with. Of course, the most infamous member of the Axis camp, and another state which felt its opportunities compromised by the war, but for very different reasons, was Italy. In the next episode, we'll catch up with Vittorio Orlando's ill-fated mission to Versailles, as well as those of his peers, as the Big Four exit the stage. Hey. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 